just sitting in his, in his office and he's at his desk working. He's like, Shark, Bart, Lockheed Martin. Welcome to the Four Corner Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we have a very special guest with us. It is my mother, Nancy Allard. Hi, Mom. Hello. It's so nice to be here. And would you say you're our number one fan? I hope so. All right. I hope so. I would say so. Pretty much. I would, I would agree. I Where knew. are you visiting us from, Nancy? Salt Lake City. Salt Lake Another City, Four Corner State. Yes. Interesting how we all have connections to Four Corner States. I wonder why we did a podcast on them. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> For the record, I got Nancy on the sports podcast first, so I win. What are we what competing the for? Prize? Yeah. yeah, we're competing. Okay, I don't know what the prize is, but I feel I... like since my mom was on the pod, both podcasts, we're both winners. I'm the biggest winner, and, and you're no, the biggest loser. The biggest winner is the audience. Oh my god! And uh, what are we doing this week, Katie? This week we're doing John Benet Ramsey. Oh shit! We teased it last week. We did tease it last week, just like our website that we teased last week. This still is not out. So if you're hearing this, our website is not up yet, but it will hopefully be soon, in the next couple of days. For people that don't know, where is the JonBenet Ramsey case located? This is in Boulder, Colorado. Boulder, Colorado. And where did you do your research on this one, besides having infinite My... years of knowledge about it? <laughs> this one was JonBenet Inside the Ramsey Murder Investigation by Steve Thomas, who was one of the lead detectives on the case. Oh, snap. Steve wrote his own book, eh? Straight from the horse's mouth. Mm-hmm. You can say that. Where, where are we going to start with uh, John Bonet? <laughs> we are starting with some background, and then this is part one, so there's going to be, I don't know how many parts, probably four, because it's a long case, obviously, 20 years later. So we're going to do kind of the background in the beginning of the investigation, and then get in more into the later years of the investigation in the coming weeks. And are we going to be able to at any time speculate who we think actually did it? We're going to save that for the end. What's the end? As well as all of my fine theories that I have that are collected over years of internet research. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm. <laughs> I've got some theories. And Jake well, will make up whatever pops out of that little old brain of yours. This is not surprising, <laughs> it's a huge but... brain, okay? Just... <laughs> oh, yeah, that big old melon-shaped, gross, gray pile of mush that's in your skull so everyone actually has theories about this case why don't you uh start us <laughs> off with a little jean benet jean benet ramsey was born august 6 1990 in atlanta georgia she was the second child to patsy and john ramsey with her older brother burke being born in 1987 the family lived an upper class lavish lifestyle as john was one of the founders of access graphics an eventual subsidiary of lockheed martin access graphics created computer hardware and software and for those who don't know Lockheed Martin is the world's largest defense contractor and also deals in aerospace and security. Basically, if you're looking for someone to blame for the advancement of war technology, Lockheed Martin is your answer. As of May 1st, 1996, John's assets were worth $7,348,628, and his total net worth was $6,230,628. Total liabilities were $1,118,000. Weird that $118,000 appears there. This is not the first time that $118,000 will come up not related to the ransom note. Weird. Okay. So, after John Bonet's first birthday, the Ramseys left Georgia and moved to Boulder, Colorado. A year later, in 1992, one of John's daughters from his first marriage tragically died in a car accident. 
One, why did they move to Boulder, Colorado? I think it was because of his growing business. I think business was better in Colorado. Uh, Lockheed Martin, largest war manufacturer, is located in Littleton, Colorado, I believe. Oh, okay. So that explains that question. Two, why was someone else driving his child around when she died? Who was driving his child around? It was her boyfriend, and she was 22. Oh, she was old. Yeah, because John was born in 43 and Patsy in 56. So they're 16 years apart. So he was married and had grown children when he met Patsy and had children with her. Yeah, he was a sophomore in high school when she was born. The seed is strong. (laughs) No, they're 13 years apart, not 16, but same difference. Either way, he had children, and it was her boyfriend, and they both died in the accident. That's rough. Reports from friends and family say that during the time after her death, John was completely inconsolable, often staying up through the night and wailing in agony in his office. This is going to be important to keep in mind as we get further into the episode. Patsy was also diagnosed with cancer in 1992, where she was immediately placed into an extremely aggressive trial treatment program by John. It worked, and she went into remission rather quickly. Was John a doctor? How did that happen, though? How do you just get placed in an aggressive trial program? Money. money yeah, money, money, lots money. and lots of monies. That's true. Money is in a private airplane. Yeah, he so. flew her. It was in Georgia, so he would fly her to Georgia for like two weeks, and then he would fly her right back, and she would stay in a hospital here for two weeks, and then like go home, and then go back for more treatment. Do we yeah, know money. what uh, the treatment was at all? No, I'm not sure. $150,000. We just know that it was aggressive, so it was like a dude. Like, and it was a trial. Punching a punching so. bag and yelling at her for, you have cancer. Boom, 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 punching the punching bag. Super aggressive. Yeah, that's what aggressive usually means is there's a punching bag involved. There's no punching bag. They're punching the cancer aggressively. Uh, you got to uh, punch it out of him. Punch it out of him. Okay. John Benet's childhood was relatively normal until the age of four. She was briefly homeschooled before being entered into a church preschool program. What do Jake and John Benet have in common? No, I don't think that being homeschooled <laughs> has literally anything to do with this whole story, and I'm not even sure why it's in there. Jake was homeschooled, and he was basically adopted by the church later on. The family traveled to their lavish vacation home every summer, where John Benet enjoyed swimming and playing outside in the dirt. This changed when Patsy took a trip to a Little Miss America pageant in 1994. She and her sister had both been pageant queens in their younger years, and seeing it again made Patsy decide that John Bonet would be her successor. She began at four years old, competing and winning in almost every pageant Patsy could find. In the summer of 94, Burke accidentally hit John Bonet in the cheek with a golf club, and Patsy immediately rushed her to a plastic surgeon so the injury wouldn't affect her pageant career. Was it an accident, though? I can't. I'm not going to speculate on that. <laughs> maybe it's just, maybe he didn't like his sister, and he hit her in the face with a golf club. Did she actually have to have plastic surgery from getting hit in the face? Like, did she break any bone or anything? No. She just rushed her to a plastic surgeon. She's like, oh, shit, he's a doctor and he can fix this. <laughs> the doctor was like, what's the matter? It's a little bruise. Yeah, I think it probably split her cheek, but that was about it. And it's possible it was an accident or it's possible that someone was a little jealous. Jealous that his sister got to parade around? Or that his sister got a bunch of attention and he did not. Patsy took pageants very seriously, with one family friend recalling that while the family was out to eat in a restaurant, John Bonet asked for a jacket because she was cold. Patsy refused to give her a sweater, saying she was still quote unquote on show. Like a sacrificial lamb on display. Is that what that's like? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in 1996, after joining a private school, Patsy made John Bonet perform a holiday show for her school. John Bonet had to sing and dance on stage all day long as classes were brought in and out to watch her. 
Even when she wanted to stop, Patsy made her continue until the whole school had seen her perform. At a Christmas party at the Ramsey home a few days before her murder, a family friend came across John Bonet crying. When she asked her what was wrong, John Bonet replied, I don't feel pretty. That's sad. That's pretty fucked up for a little kid to even think something like that. They shouldn't have to worry about that. Not, I agree. Yeah, not that age is ridiculous. I have to. I kind of think that any sort of pageantry like that is kind of damaging to a child. At 5.52 a.m. on December 26, 1996, a 911 call came into the Boulder Dispatch Center. 
Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good, southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. Victory, SBTC. Southern Baptist Trump cucks. Stealing babies. The culling. Sexy baby true crime. Search behind the church. Smelly bad trash cans. Scott Brook Truth Carruthers. Salacious bacterial turd colons. Which one of those is correct, Katie? <laughs> um, D, none of the above. D, none of the above. So do we ever know what SBTC stands for? No. Hmm. I think if you read the last paragraph, it actually tells you. Some brothers that cat. <laughs> Southern brain tricky cats. <laughs> He did say they did say fat cats in there. So. Yeah. yeah, southern brain tacky cats. So I think plenty of people have tried to figure out what this means, and no one ever has. So I'm sorry, but you guys will not get it. <laughs> we literally just got it right now. Don't try to grow a brain. I'm pretty sure it's salacious bacterial turd colons. The first thing that should have been done when a word of a kidnapping came through dispatch was send an unmarked car, but Boulder police did not. Officer French was first on scene, and Patsy explained that at 5.45, she had gone to John Bonet's room because they were flying to Michigan early that morning. When she opened the door, she found the room empty. She rushed down the stairs, apparently not checking any other rooms, and found the ransom note lying spread out on one of the steps. John checked all the doors and windows, which were locked. He did admit that their alarm system was not set, and the family dog had stayed at the neighbor's house, likely in preparation for their trip. Seems extremely... Convenient. Convenient for this murderer, kidnapper person. Yeah, almost like they knew the schedule of the Ramses. After Patsy made the 911 call, she called her close friends the Whites and another set of friends. <laughs> or actually the other Whites, because they're definitely white. <laughs> they're all white, is they're what you're all saying? They're all white, yeah. <laughs> all four people showed up at the home not long after police and were let inside to console Patsy. Interestingly, the ransom note specifically said that if they saw the Ramsey stalking to as much as a stray dog, John Bonet would die. This obviously didn't prevent Patsy from calling police and her best friends and inviting them all over. Which seems kind of bass backwards if, like you say, it's like, don't talk to anybody, we're going to kill her, and they're just like, hey everybody, come on over. As more police arrived, they started to notice that John was much too calm and collected for the situation at hand, and that he was not making any move to comfort Patsy, who at the time was sobbing on the floor. John did cry once when he answered the phone and told the person on the other end that John Bonet had been kidnapped. This is a possible call to the handler to confirm that the ritual was complete and his daughter was dead. Right, Kitty? <laughs> Even with all the noise in the home, Burke was still fast asleep in his bed. Because he's an alien. The only one with a clean conscience. Police Chief Reichenbach. Horrible Reichenbacher. 
looked through the entire house, including the basement, and found nothing but a separate room in the basement with a door that would not open. His hands were so greasy from all the popcorn he had been eating. (laughs) I was going to say, maybe you should use a little butter to lube the hinges. Rather than try to get inside, he figured if he couldn't get in, neither could the kidnappers, and left it alone. That's just super solid police work. Yeah, all of this is (laughs) top-notch. Probably the kidnappers had clean hands. And they were just, nope, slipping off the doorknob. (laughs) Throughout the entire day, Patsy, her friends, and more cops all went down to the basement to look around. One person even opened that stuck door, but all they found was absolutely nothing. When one of the whites was in the basement, they noticed a broken window and glass shards on the floor. He picked them up, moving a suitcase to the side to get them all. This will be an important piece of quote-unquote evidence later. So there was, you know, they're doing a, you know, quote-unquote investigation trying to find John Bonet, and they just start moving shit around where it's obvious someone broke some shit? Leave it to the whites to fuck up a crime scene. (laughs) Intentionally. It turns out that it was actually, like, months before John had kicked this window through because he forgot his keys and needed to get in the house. Was it a big window or a small window? It was a little window. It's probably one that, like, sits under the ground. You don't ever see them here in Arizona, but they have... seen a couple. Little wells that go around them like this, and you (laughs) you drop down into a basement, sorry. Yeah, there's, like, a tiny piece of... Of that level of the house that sits above ground, and there's usually windows, and that's the one that he kicked in, but they were barred, and it wasn't locked, but there was cobwebs growing, and nothing was disturbed. Oh, okay. 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 It's just the suitcase to pay attention to. Oh, I got distracted by the glass shards. Now, was this suitcase happen to be the size of a six-year-old child? (laughs) No. Oh, okay. Between 6.45 and 6.50 a.m., two victims, advocates, and a crime scene tech arrived at the home. Once again, they were led inside the active crime scene. As the crime scene tech dusted for fingerprints, one of the victim advocates followed behind him and cleaned up the mess. What's a victim advocate? Um, What it sounds like. Someone who goes to court with you and just kind of helps you through the legal system. Sticks up for you. So they're there to get an idea of the situations for later down the road type thing? or And just go to court with the with the victim and just okay. kind of help them. Because like, they're so traumatized, a lot of times they don't know what's going on. So. Uh, so if you're murdered, then this person would be going to court on the criminal case on your behalf? type thing or no they don't prop up dead bodies in in a murder case a victim would be the anyone related to the actual person that was murdered so like parents are would require victims advocates so they were there for the parents not for jumping they're for the victims yes they're for the the living victims yeah the living victims they should call them living victim advocates at 733 a canine unit was told to be on standby but they were never used why did they not bring the dog in? I guess they decided they didn't need to find her. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you wouldn't be like, hmm, this dog can probably find the child that's missing. If they had brought the dog in, then you probably could have determined that the body wasn't in the house. And then Young Burke has an allergy to canine hair. <laughs> we cannot allow the dog in our house. <laughs> Officers that were also on standby were told they weren't needed and could go back to their normal patrol duties. Obviously, officers at the time weren't aware this would be one of the biggest crimes in Colorado history, but they still should have known that the more backup, the better chance of finding the kidnapped child. Or even just looking for the kid. There's got to be some sort of standard protocol there that they missed. I think you get the dog out of the truck. Yeah, that's one. 
the in Colorado at the time they were very they were very like don't get involved like police need to be nonviolent and non accusatory and basically unless they did something terribly wrong in front of you then you can maybe arrest them but then they're gonna get a plea deal in court so basically hands off approach to exactly policing. yeah they weren't really supposed to do anything and they also had never dealt with any kidnapping kidnappings like ever so this was their first time and obviously they didn't handle it correctly yeah around 7 30 john and one of patsy's friends woke Burke up and tried sneaking him out of the home and into a car officers stopped them telling john they needed to interview him but john just shot back he knew nothing and slept through the night before shoving him into a car and sending him off can parents just deny police the ability to interview or talk to their child if they're a potential witness. Yes, if you're a minor. Uh, you have to have a parent present. Even if they're a potential suspect. Yes. Well, yeah, I have to have a parent present, but doesn't that mean the police could still uh, go get a subpoena for their... Can you subpoena a child? Mm-hmm. Ooh, that six-year-old that keeps fucking throwing his wrappers on my yard is about to get a big surprise. <laughs> <laughs> his parents are not going to be happy. You could technically, yes, subpoena him, but it's way too early. There's no grand jury convened, and that's the only time you'd really subpoena him. So if John says no, you can't speak to my child, police are like, okay, well. Okay. Guess he's going to keep throwing his wrappers on the lawn. Sorry for asking. At 810, Officer French made yet another trip into the basement. While looking around, he noticed the mysterious door locked from the outside, so there's no way one could lock it after exiting through it. Because he was strictly looking for entry and exit points, he didn't bother to open the door. When he came back up the stairs, he noticed Patsy was watching him intensely through her parted fingers. What does that mean? Like like she was crying, she had her face in her hands, and she was watching him like this? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Not like what I thought. I was thinking like the... No. Like a disco? (laughs) Yeah, like disco or... She just saw me. No. <laughs> I assume she had her face in her hands because she was crying, and she like slit her fingers and was watching him, so, like she was that's still crying. What I yeah. My question is, why do all the names in this sound super made up? Like, oh, these are our friends, the Whites. Officer French is over here. Like, do they all just have to sound so fake? Colonel like Mustard is probably yes. helping out. Yes, we are on the same page here. It is like a little, literal real-life game of Clue. <laughs> Around this time, Patsy's story started changing. While comparing notes, officers noticed that she told one she'd found the note first, then checked John Bonet's room, and told another she checked John Bonet's room, then found the note. Easy mistake to make. Wrong. While this may seem insignificant, usually timelines only change when it's been made up. See, Rory. When she was asked who may be responsible, Patsy instantly blurted out her housekeeper, who had asked her for a $2,000 loan the month before and had a key to the home. The reverend at the home backed Patsy up, saying that the housekeeper had said how beautiful John Bonet was and how she was worried someone would kidnap her. Is this actually a case of church cover-up, further proving this was a direct path to Armageddon from child sacrifice? No, Rory. Right. It's just proof that you need to really vet your housekeepers because you have to be able to trust the person who's sniffing your laundry. Either of those correct, Katie? No. Okay. (laughs) While looking at the ransom note, Patsy randomly pointed out how it was the same kind of paper that they had in their kitchen. What she didn't notice was the deadline for the phone call in the note as 10 a.m. came and went without so much as a word. 
She wrote she wrote the note and didn't notice the deadline? Nobody noticed that they had that eight to ten AM window and no one noticed when they were like, Oh, it's ten thirty. Not Aren't even we the supposed cops? to get a phone call from someone? Yeah, what you, in all the movies they're always sitting around a table during that window, like watching a phone. Yeah, no, nobody noticed. <laughs> At ten thirty, John Bonet's bedroom was officially sealed off as a crime scene. It had been four and a half hours since the nine one one call and dozens of people had been in and out of the room already. Around this time, all but one officer left the home, leaving Detective Arndt to keep track of seven adults by herself. Between roughly 10.30 a.m. and 12 p.m., she completely lost John, with no sight of him for an hour and a half. She assumed he went outside to check the mail, not knowing that it came through a slot in the front door. When she finally found him again, she noted that his behavior changed drastically, from calm and cool to erratic and nervous. Really makes you wonder what he got in the mail. So he removed the body from the salt circle after her life force had been pulled down to hell to kickstart the apocalypse. Right, Katie? <laughs> because he was so anxious, Arndt recommended that he and the Whites do something to keep themselves occupied. Her suggestion was to search the house from top to bottom to look for any clues John Bonet have left behind. Colorado police aren't very good, are they? No, they're not. No one really in Colorado is very good. The DA Hands-off approach. Yeah. John went straight for the basement, apparently working bottom to top. Where in the house is John Bonet's room located, like in comparison, especially to the basement? Was it far away or? Um, I'm not sure in relation, but I know her bedroom, I believe, was on the third story and the basement was. So this was a tall house. Yeah, it was a three story. I think it was the, the top story were the kids' bedrooms and the John and Patsy's room. And then the second floor was like a playroom, basically. But there was lots and lots of rooms to search, basically. And when someone tells you to start top to bottom, you usually start top to bottom. You don't go bottom to top when they say to go top to bottom. Yeah, unless you're looking specifically for something. Ah. After looking around for a minute, he opened up that mysterious white door that had been opened four times already. He flipped the light switch on and began to scream. Oh my god! Oh my god! Lying on the floor in front of him was John Bonet's body, carefully wrapped in a blanket with black duct tape over her mouth. There was rope tied around her right wrist, and her pink nightgown lay near her. John picked her up and ran upstairs yelling. Detective Art noted that while he was carrying her, he was holding her out at the end of straight arms rather than held closely to him, as if he wanted her as far away from him as possible. Everyone came running when they heard John yell, besides Patsy, who stayed seated on the couch, almost as if she knew why he was yelling. Now, that doesn't necessarily, that's not necessarily like a negative clue leading towards John. I mean, maybe he was just like trying to figure out what to do with her and he was holding her at arm's length. (laughs) Yeah, it's possible. A negative clue against Patsy. Possibly. She's just sitting there. John asked Arndt if she was alive, and when she said no, he replied, quote, it had to be an inside job. Three years later, Detective Arndt would recount the moment, saying, quote, As we looked at each other, I wore a shoulder holster. I remember tucking my gun right next to me and consciously counting, I've got 18 bullets. I didn't know if we'd all be alive when people showed up. Everything made sense in that instant, and I knew what happened. What did she mean by that? Like, she was just going to shoot her way out if she had to, or? I think that she was implying that she knew that the family was involved in some way and that if they figured out that she knew that then she might have she to murder them. Going to have to protect herself. Yeah. She told him to call 911 and then go comfort Patsy who was now crying hysterically. 2 minutes later, he walked back into the room and tossed a blanket over John Bonet's body. 
This destroyed any fiber evidence on the body that wasn't already destroyed when she was carried upstairs by John. To make matters worse, John then came back and laid down with his arm around JonBenet's body. He then sat up on his knees, looked around the room, and hugged her before getting up and walking away. Patsy was brought in next, and she collapsed over the body, destroying any last chance that fiber evidence could be taken from the body. I don't want a victim shame here, but I think there's a time and a place for doing your hugging and grieving, and it's probably not in the middle of a police investigation. I mean... A strangulation investigation. It probably didn't feel like an investigation with only one cop there. Well, that's a fair point. Yeah, it's got to be kind of hard to control a grieving family. Especially when they just found the body of their child. I think you just got to whip out your firearm. Not all evidence was lost during this time, though. Back at the police station, one detective was just getting around to looking at the pad of paper Patsy thought the note was written on. After flipping through the pages, he found one that said Mr. and Mrs. I, with the I being the beginning of an R. The detective knew immediately what he was looking at, a practice ransom note. I just don't like the way I started to write the R, so I restarted the note. Now, could this thing have possibly been written under, like, duress, so she restarted it numerous times? Whoever wrote it didn't like the fact that they included Mrs. Ramsey. Ah. I think they thought it looked more legitimate written strictly to John because John was the one with the money. Okay. And maybe didn't want to implicate themselves. Interesting. You would do the opposite, including yourself, I think, in the ransom note. Back at the home, a detective overheard John on the phone at 1.40, requesting that a flight to Atlanta be prepared for them as soon as possible. Rather than hold them for questioning or to keep them from leaving the state, the Ramseys were allowed to get into their car and drive away with zero supervision. Rich white people don't need supervision, Katie. It's just a fact. Mm -hmm. The house was finally closed off completely at around 2.35, eight and a half hours after the original 911 call. Around the same time, the Ramseys' housekeeper and her husband were being interviewed. Where was Berkey Boy at this time? He was with other friends. He had been carted out of the house when they... Smuggled him out to... Basically, yeah. Go so, play Super Nintendo. Can we assume that they were hiding him from the police? Mm-hmm. Okay. Pretty much. I mean, I don't know why you'd... Even if he heard nothing, you'd still let him talk to the police. Right. Unless... They were cooperative and gave up any information they knew, including the fact that John Bonet frequently had accidents, either wetting or soiling the bed, or even sometimes her pants. This was extremely important information to detectives, as wetting or soiling the bed past potty training age can be a sign of sexual abuse. At 8 p.m., a search warrant of the house was granted and the coroner was allowed in. When he turned JonBenet's body over, he found a garrote wrapped tightly around her neck. What is a garrote? So a garrote basically is... It's how uh, Syl kills the one guy in season two of The Sopranos when he walks up behind him and is like... Grabs him with the... Piano wire? Yeah, it's basically piano wire. And then there's something on the end that you twist, and yeah. it tightens around the neck. Ooh. Yeah, so you just sort of tighten It's like it tightening up a fence. Instead of having to put mm, all of exactly. your... Instead of having to put all your weight behind pulling the rope around their neck, you just twist it, and then you're not having to Cut basically them. hold them down and strangle them at the same time. There were small abrasions under her ear and jawline, and a small amount of blood in her nose. Patsy had originally told police that John Bonet had gone to bed in a red turtleneck, but she was found wearing a white pullover and the turtleneck balled up on the counter. It seemed unlikely that a kidnapper would take time to both write a ransom note in the home and have John Bonet change her clothes, all while trying to go undetected. Unless you're a world-class government-trained assassin funded by the New World Order, right, Katie? 
Coming. I'll go with the assassins. I'm going to plead the fifth <laughs> on that one. In the basement, a broken and splintered paintbrush was found close to where John Bonet's body had laid. It was determined that it was used to tighten the garrote around her neck. John Bonet's official autopsy was held December 27th. Nothing was found under her fingernails, which would indicate a struggle. Fluid was found on her thighs that lit up under a UV light, meaning it was some sort of bodily fluid, which detectives assumed to be semen. They found pineapple in her upper digestive tract, meaning she had eaten within a few hours of her death. There were a few minor abrasions on her neck, back, and left leg, along with slight abrasions inside her vagina. A small amount of blood in her eye indicated that she was still alive when she was strangled. The biggest finding was that the entire upper right side of her skull had been crushed by something that left a rectangular pattern. The autopsy determined she was alive at the time her skull was crushed and when she was strangled, so either could be her cause of death. So if there's no signs of a struggle, even though she was, you know, choked, uh, it seems probable that she probably knew whoever, like, took her out of her bed or her bedroom or whatever. Somebody she trusted. There's different theories. There's one theory that she did know and trust whoever murdered her, and then there's another theory that someone used a stun gun, basically, to incapacitate her and carry her. And it's possible that she didn't die in the basement. It's possible she maybe died in her bedroom and was carried down to the basement and left there to be harder to find. Was there any signs of struggle in the bedroom, really? No. Hmm. So either way, she was probably incapacitated before the struggle. Yeah, more than likely... My best guess is that she was hit. Whatever crushed her skull was first the blunt force trauma, and that incapacitated her completely, and then she was strangled as kind of a cover-up type deal. That afternoon, detectives received a call from the deputy district attorney who said John and Patsy were asking about a funeral. This was odd to detectives because the Ramsey had had the direct phone number for police, but chose to speak through the district attorney's office. Police went to the home where they were staying that evening for a formal interview since the case had turned from kidnapping to homicide. John refused to speak to police alone and had his brother, a family friend, his financial advisor who was posing as a lawyer, and his actual lawyer with him. He gave short answers and didn't ask police any questions about their investigation, almost coming off as if he didn't care if they were making progress towards finding who killed his daughter. Patsy had been given Valium by a family friend who was a pediatrician, so they told police she was too inebriated to talk to them. I call bullshit because it's probably a child-sized Valium because he's a pediatrician. He's a pediatrician, <laughs> and he has a tiny script pad that he yeah. writes, and he says this has to be uses teeny crayon. tiny baby Valium. Yeah. He uses crayon, fills it out. On the 28th, a patrol officer was told to take one of Patsy's sisters to the home, a.k.a. an active crime scene, to get clothes for the family to wear to the funeral. After an hour inside, she came out with a large, overflowing box of clothes and other items. She made about a dozen more trips inside, spending hours going through all of the Ramsey's belongings and taking whatever she pleased. Because she took so much, police weren't able to keep a proper log of everything removed from the home. Was she stealing all this shit or just taking it back to the family? She was quote-unquote taking it back to the family. Hmm. Quote-unquote. Quote-unquote needed it for the funeral. I don't know what she took. She took, like, literally everything out of the house, basically, which... You shouldn't do. Along with their crime scene being destroyed, the family pediatrician decided that Burke could not be interviewed by police, and both Patsy and John were also refusing any more interviews. They said the only thing they may be open to was answering written questions, but they would have to be allowed to look at all of the case information first. This meant that they could basically perfect any answers to questions based off their previous statements and what police had for evidence. Why would they think that they were actually able to do that? Who gave them that idea? Um... 
they had they had already lawyered up both of them had separate uh. lawyers so I'm sure it was mainly him and mainly we have money so why wouldn't we be allowed to do this and because rich white people don't need supervision Rory police were already concerned when they were contacted by the deputy DA for the Ramses but they were shocked when they attempted to call the DA's office and the number forwarded them to the Ramses defense lawyer. In no case should the prosecution and defense work this closely, especially when it's the prime suspect's defense. This meant trouble in an already very compromised case. What's that called? A conflict of interest? Mm-hmm. And there was a big one here. The last bit of evidence pulled from the home turned out to be the pen used to write both the practice and ransom notes. Oddly, the pens were found in the cup where they were kept, meaning the kidnappers politely put them back where they found them once they were done writing their ransom note. Do kidnappers often forget ransom notes when they go to kidnap? I have to write them at the last yeah. minute. Yeah. Oh, shit. Did you bring the ransom note? I didn't bring it. Did you? I thought you brought it. Can you imagine they spent all day cutting out the magazine letters and, like, gluing them together? <laughs> and then they got there and they were like, did you, you, didn't, you didn't bring the fucking ransom note? Oh, my God. I left the folder sitting on the coffee table. We went spent through... so much time on that. And they spent, like... Six dollars on glue sticks. They probably went through so many of them. I told you we should have gone with the spray adhesive. It was cheaper. Also, how did they? How did she know? Like she was like, this is the pin that they used. Must be. I mean, they did spe- very specific testing. There, you can test literally anything, including pens. And they got those bal- ballistics off the ballpoint pins. They were felt tip pens, but the FBI, <laughs> like I said, can literally test anything and figure out where it came from. That's a long note to be written in a felt-tip pen. It really is a long note, period. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was three pages, which, like, is unheard of for ransom notes. He was just sitting down in John's favorite chair, writing away. <laughs> hey, I'm going to say this can- to you. Yeah. Did you kill John Bonet yet? Huh? No, I've been sitting here waxing poetic on <laughs> all sorts of things. <laughs> Patsy gave them a little hint of evidence when they were routinely fingerprinting and taking samples from her. She asked the detective if it would help find who killed her baby, and the detective responded he hoped so. Patsy looked down and quietly stated, I didn't kill my baby. This is actually kind of a real sad thing if she's super innocent. He's like, yeah, I hope so. And all in her head can think is like, this guy thinks I killed my child. That's got to be a terrible feeling to have. Like, Let's say Patsy's innocent and... This guy basically just told her, I think you killed your child. How terrible a person would feel. That's pretty shitty. I mean, he wasn't pointing fingers. He didn't say that he thought she did it at all. And she had her lawyer there with him, with her. And so the detective spun around and he was like, what did you say? And she was like, I didn't kill my baby. And her lawyer was like, holy fuck, you need to shut up. <laughs> and like jumped in and stopped her. So obviously there was something there. He wasn't there. judgmental then, is no, no, she like, literally mm-hmm. just blurted it out. Like, okay. she didn't, they weren't questioning her because they weren't allowed to. They were just taking routine fingerprints and they weren't talking. And she was like, Will this help find who killed my kid? And he said, Yeah, I hope so. And she said, I didn't kill my baby. There was no other conversation that led up to it. After talking to numerous people who had been inside the home, detectives realized how difficult it would have been for someone who'd never been in the house to find their way around. The home was massive, with a front and back staircase, and many rooms. It would have been 100% pure luck for the kidnappers to stumble upon the small room in the basement where John Bonet's body was found. Whoever it was also knew to leave the ransom note on the back staircase rather than the front, 
as Patsy descended down the back every morning. Wouldn't it mm-hmm. make more sense if they, like, most people, if they wrote a ransom note and they used the pen and the paper from the house? Of course, none of it really makes sense, but I think that you would just, I, if it were me, I'd probably even just leave the whole pad and paper pen all just sitting right there by the coffee pot. They're going to find it. Yeah, that's what I kind of thought, too, is why wouldn't you just leave it on the kitchen counter or the table where you wrote it and you know... Or the place where your kid's supposed to be. Like yeah. Next to the John Denver place. CD. Yeah. Like, the very place where the kid was, like, leave it on her bed. So as soon as they walk in, they're like, oh, shit, and there's a note. Yeah. Well, I never thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense, too. That's how it happens in the movies, really. Or on the window, where they went out the window, they leave the note. One piece of evidence that seemed extremely promising was given to detectives by the family's minister. He suggested that the 118,000 figure of the ransom note was due to Psalm 118, which reads, God is the Lord, which hath showed us the light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Unfortunately, what seemed legitimate quickly turned into coincidence, and no connection was ever truly made. Unless you count the thousands of man-hours the basement dwellers have spent on connecting John Bonet to ritual sacrifice through dubious evidence such as this, right, Katie? If we were looking at the Ramses as our suspects, John did not read the King's James Version, which worded Psalm that way, but another Bible that did not use the words bind or accords. You're trying to tell me that throughout the years, the interpretation of the Bible has tra- changed at every transla- translation? The Bible is a living... <laughs> the living word of God? It's the living word of God. Ah, yes, it evolves. Also, the 118,000, and he was 1,118,000 worth of uh, debts, basically, right? His liabilities? Liabilities. There's probably some rule where if you get to a million or below, it helps you on taxes. So he was hoping he could write off his daughter's ransom. It'll come up again, I think, next week. Is this a tax write-off? My daughter? His daughter's murder? Yeah. (laughs) I don't think so, but you never know, I guess. He's one less dependent. (laughs) That could be a benefit or... Depends on where these people they are so wealthy. It just doesn't matter. Taxes aren't a real thing to them. Right. Just buy another one. <laughs> Have it shipped in, <laughs> cloned, any of the above. John Bonet's second funeral and burial took place on December 30th in Atlanta. She was laid to rest next to her stepsister. During the funeral, Patsy asked one of her friends to retrieve the pants she'd worn the day John Bonet died, and Odd requested a funeral, especially one thousands of miles away from your home. And wouldn't the pants technically be, like, evidence? Not to the Boulder police, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It depends on which police department you ask. Yeah, this one's really up for debate. We're not really sure if the pants the child was wearing are considered evidence. The pants Patsy was wearing. Oh, it was Patsy's pants. Well, okay, that could be a different story. The Whites had gone to Atlanta for the funeral and were the first to see what happens if you question the Ramsey's choices. They were concerned that John and Patsy were refusing to speak to police and planned on speaking to them about it. John's brother found out what they were planning and called for a family meeting. The Ramsey family overreacted so badly that one of Patsy's sisters was convinced the Whites were coming to kill them. The Whites go to Atlanta sounds like a pretty fun movie, though. (laughs) (laughs) Depends on the time era. (laughs) They eventually calmed down and had a cordial, unemotional conversation, which the Ramseys would later claim was a screaming match. After this event, John and Patsy got their revenge by naming the Whites as possible suspects. They would go on to name a good portion of their closest friends, their 70-year-old neighbor, anyone who'd ever been fired from Access Graphics, and more. They gave the police years' worth of work naming useless suspects. Which sounds like a pretty good idea if 
You're trying to throw them off of your own trail. The beginning of 1997 brought new evidence from the pad of paper the ransom note was written on. It was discovered that pages 1 through 12 were missing, 13 through 16 were notes, 17 through 25 were missing, and page 26 was the practice ransom note. Page 26 also had bleed through from page 25, and tear patterns proved the exact pad of paper had been used to write the ransom note. Even more damning was the fact that handwriting comparison tests came back, showing that 24 letters written in the ransom note out of the 26 letters in the alphabet matched Patsy Ramsey's handwriting. With this, detectives now knew that 1. The kidnappers didn't bring a ransom note. They, 2. Used a pen and paper from the home to write the note after breaking in. 3. Returned the pen and paper neatly where they found it. And 4. Had handwriting almost an exact match to Patsy's. And that's where we'll pick up next week. That is a shit nice. ton of coincidences all in one bundle. That is. So look out for part two next week, guys. I'm pretty excited. And, yeah, uh, me too. God damn, this story's taken some dark turns already. Yeah. I mean, it's dead child. It's usually pretty dark. Yeah. And thanks for coming on, Mom. Appreciate yeah, thank it. You. Thank you so much for being here. It was my pleasure. Did you enjoy it? Uh, yes. It's been a really <laughs> cool experience. Very nice. All right, guys. Well, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, and on Twitter at fourcornerscrime. Yeah, I think so. I was. And also, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. All of you Android listeners who are just listening to us a lot, just keep on listening on whatever platform you do. Also, check us out within a couple of days now. A couple of days, our website's going to be live. We're working on it. Anyways, guys, so have a good week, and uh, we'll see you next time. See you next week. See ya. Bye. Adios, motherfuckers.